page here? Shall we begin? Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the uh, annual Herbert W. Vaughn uh, Lecture. Uh, this is the Madison Program's premier event for the fall term, and we're uh, delighted to have a very distinguished scholar to give uh, this the second of the Vaughn Lectures, and I will have the pleasure of introducing him in a moment. I want to begin, though, with a special uh, word of welcome uh, to Captain Fry and the cadets from uh, West Point. You uh, uh, are very welcome here, and we're really glad that you came. Thank you. While I'm recognizing dignitaries, I also want to uh, welcome uh, Judge Edith Clement of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, a member of the James Madison Program Advisory Council, and someone about whom you've all been reading recently. Judge Clement. We are here uh, this evening because of the generosity of one of the founders of the James Madison Program and a beloved friend of the program, Mr. Herbert W. Vaughn. Uh, Mr. Vaughn is a member of the Advisory Council of the Madison Program. He's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. He's a retired partner of the uh, firm of Wilmer, Cutler, uh, and Pickering, Hale, and Door, where the focus of his practice was in commercial and industrial real estate. Mr. Vaughn, who is with us this evening, I'm glad to say, is a member of the American Law Institute and a fellow of the Massachusetts Historical Society and a former visiting fellow of New College, Oxford. He served for many years uh, as a member of the governing boards, uh, board and as chairman of the Trustees of Reservations, a Massachusetts Land Conservation Trust, which is the oldest such organization in the United States and served as the model for the Tr National Trust of England. Uh, Mr. Vaughn is uh, active not only in the Madison program, but also in the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. He is one of my uh, dearest friends, and I'm just delighted that he is again with us for the Vaughn uh, lecture this year. Will you join me in a gratitude? <laughs> now, uh, just before introducing Professor Caesar, uh, I will uh, fulfill the requirements of the uh, endowment for the Vaughn gift uh, by reading a statement which, uh, by the terms of the endowment, must be read at the beginning of each Vaughn lecture. Uh, last year, Mr. Vaughn, at the inaugural lecture, read it uh, himself, uh, and this year I have the honor of reading it in his behalf. I, Herbert W. Vaughn, have endowed this lecture at Princeton University to promote and advance understanding of the founding principles and core doctrines of American constitutionalism. What Alexander Hamilton said to the Americans of his day remains true for Americans of every generation. Quote, it seems to have been reserved to the people of this country by their conduct and example to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. Of course, the famous uh, words uh, from the Federalist Papers. Mr. Vaughn continues, in my judgment, the Constitution of the United States is the greatest practical achievement of political science. It is a testament to the extraordinary gifts of creativity, prudence, and high-mindedness possessed by the founders of our nation. 
may you be guided. And please remember that generations of Princetonians will hear these words. May you be guided and inspired by their genius as you meet the challenges of the present day. Again, thank you, Mr. Vaughn. Uh, now I have the pleasure of introducing our speaker this evening. Uh, James W. Caesar is professor of politics at the University of Virginia, where he has taught since 1976. He is one of our nation's leading uh, scholars of American political thought. He has written several books on American politics and political thought, including Presidential Selection, Reforming the Reforms, Liberal Democracy and Political Science, and Reconstructing America. Professor Caesar has held visiting professorships at the University of Florence, the University of Basel, Oxford University, the University of Bordeaux, and the University of Rennes. Professor Caesar is a frequent contributor to the popular press as well as to uh, distinguished academic journals, and he often comments on American politics for the Voice of America. It's a very great pleasure and an honor to welcome to Princeton Professor James Caesar. Thanks, Robbie, and it's a great honor uh, to address you this evening to present the second Vaughn Lecture. And I'd like to express my appreciation to the, the benefactor and to commend him for encouraging a, a continuing interest in the American founding, which is not only the most important period in our own national history, but it's also a moment of universal significance, having been responsible, in James Madison's word, for rearing the fabrics of governments which have no model on the face of the globe. In studying the American founding, we have the best case for instruction on the most successful form of government of our age, liberal democracy. Speaking of uh, James Madison, I'm also mindful that my host uh, this evening is the fine institute at Princeton that bears his name. This makes me feel quite at home, for James Madison figured very much in the history of the University of Virginia as well as Princeton. Uh, he was your prize student and later our first dean or rector. Other notable personages supply similar links. Woodrow Wilson was your president. He was a dropout from our law school. <laughs> <laughs> the political scientist uh, properly begins not with abstract models or theories, but with phenomena or data of actual political life. In observing these phenomena, we find that political actors in great political movements often see fit to offer publicly an explanation or justification of their political stance on the basis of what looks like a first theoretical principle, what I will call this evening an intellectual foundation. A foundation in political discourse is a first cause or ultimate justification for a general political orientation. It's an idea presented in a way that requires no further argument supplying the answer to the question of why, beyond which any further response is thought unnecessary. Now, so as not to get lost immediately in abstraction, let's go straight away to an illustration. And this illustration occurred at the very beginning of the saga of the American founding, at a critical debate in the, uh, in the Continental uh, Congress in 1774, which was recorded by John Adams. Adams notes that the great question that the Congress had to decide, and I quote him, was the foundation of right. Uh, what was to justify, in other words, America's policy towards Britain? And then he went on. We very deliberately considered and debated 
whether we should recur to the law of nature, along with or in place of historical foundations of, of the tradition, such as, and then he mentioned, the common law, the charters, and the rights of British subjects. So here he offered a debate over two foundations. And we find the same thing echoed by Thomas Jefferson in one of his last letters, when he uh, recalls, uh, shortly before his death, what went on during the time of the Revolution. He said, we had no occasion to search the musty records, to hunt up royal parchments, or to investigate the laws and institutions of a semi-barbarous ancestry. We appealed to those of nature and found them engraved in our hearts. Now, Adams and the others who took part in this debate at the Continental Congress were practical statesmen engaged in real political action. Their concern about selecting the proper foundation was not an exercise in getting things straight for a class in philosophy. They entered into the, into the business of deliberating on foundations because they thought that doing so was important to moving human beings in an impending action, and they thought it was essential to securing political stability over the long term. The conduct of politics, as they saw it, required the articulation of such foundational concepts. If you wish another expression of the uh, link between such foundations and real political action, none is better than what uh, Abraham Lincoln said at New Haven. He was speaking of, of slavery. He said, whenever that question shall be tested and settled, it must be settled on some philosophical basis. No policy that does not rest on some philosophical public opinion can be permanently maintained. By philosophical public opinion, he was referring to what I'm calling here an intellectual foundation. Now, as I said, the political scientist begins with the observed phenomena of politics, which in this case uh, happens to be uh, big and large ideas that also appear by happenstance in philosophical treatises where people debate the question of right. As uncomfortable as the study of uh, these ideas may be, to the more quantitative or formalist members who dominate the ranks of our profession, I'm sure that they will sign on with me in acknowledging that the profession's code of ethics demands that we examine every potential variable, be it independent, dependent, or intervening, and investigate it down to its very last degree of variance. And even if we set aside this fetish with causality, we still want to begin to classify these foundations and try to understand them and how they function. When we as political scientists do so, we can observe three general sources for these foundations, religion, nature, and history. And I'll focus my attention this evening largely on the status of the foundations of nature and history during the founding period. Let me begin by trying to provide a little bit more precision about the character of each of these foundations. A foundation in nature, when someone says natural law or something by nature, provides justification by reference to something beyond or outside of time in the character or structure of reality, something that can be rationally apprehended and that can supply a standard or a basis for a standard of political right. Nature is chiefly, therefore, a philosophical or scientific concept. And, as we find it, different views of science produce their own conceptions of nature. Darwinists have their natural law of competition. Sociobiologists have their theory of the selfish gene. 
and others as well who speak in scientific terms have a standard of nature every bit as much as did the authors of the Declaration of Independence. This said, one understanding of nature, or set of understandings, has enjoyed a privileged status in America because of its long usage in Western political thought and because of its official endorsement in the Declaration of Independence, such that, in much political discourse, this standard, whatever nature means in the Declaration, is often identified with nature itself. And even opponents of other understandings of nature often refer to this as the standard of nature. This general understanding of nature uh, refers to something uh, that's found in an unchanging and permanent order. Now, what about a foundation in history? This one, I regret to say, is more complicated. We face one of those age-old linguistic problems where, unfortunately, the same word is used to cover two very different concepts, leading to untold confusions. By referring to a foundation in history, I'm not speaking of history in the ordinary sense, by ordinary or rationalist history, what Edward Gibbons once colorfully characterized as the register of the crimes, follies, and misfortunes of mankind. Um, or, as others might have it, cause and effect relations that may explain what has occurred. This would be ordinary history. And it's the kind of history that you expect to find when you go to a bookstore and read a, a work by Eric McKittrick or David McCullough, in which you probably expect to learn a good deal about the past and perhaps much that might help in making certain kinds of judgments. But you're not seeking to discover ultimate meaning and guidance for human life or standard of right. In fact, most practicing academic historians today do not aspire to provide such a standard when they write history, nor do they think that the discipline of history properly understood is capable of supplying these sorts of ideas. It's just not their business. Foundational history, by contrast, holds that something that occurs inside the realm of time establishes a fundamental purpose or standard of right that, be, that can be used in political life as a source of guidance. How so? Something is said to be a primary cause or to be right, either because it conforms to a tradition that is deemed to be unassailable, or because it conforms to the direction in which the temporal process is said to be going, usually progress. The first option, which uh, favors the past or tradition, is often called customary history or the historical school, while the second, which looks more to the future, is usually called philosophy of history. Now, I've already indicated something about uh, customary history when speaking of the standards that some sought at the Continental Congress. They look back to the old charters for the standard of right. As for philosophy of history, think of certain authors uh, and philosophers that you know of, such as Hegel or Marx, where in discussing historical sequence, an effort is made to explain the human condition and to orient ourselves about what is right or proper action. What is good or right is what produces progress. Within our own political tradition, there's one group or party that stands out for this view, and not insignificantly, it's the one group that took an historical name as its label, the progressives. And uh, the progressive president of uh, Princeton University Woodrow Wilson spoke in these terms during a speech when running for president in 1912. Progress. No word comes more often or more naturally to the lips of modern man. 
We think of the future, not the past, as the more glorious time in comparison with which the present is nothing. Progress, development, these are modern words. The modern idea is to leave the past and press onward to something new. And so this can supply a standard of right or good. Now, it should be clear that these two foundations can sometimes be rival principles as they have different sources in their understanding of truth. Think back to the earlier citation of Thomas Jefferson, which contrasted the laws of a semi-barbarous ancestry with those of nature. For Jefferson, at least on this occasion, nature and not history it, uh, provided the standard of right. For his part, Wilson, uh, which Wilson once told an audience at a Jefferson Day celebration, no less, that if you want to understand the real Declaration of Independence, do not repeat the preface or the first paragraph. In other words, for him, history and not nature is the standard of right. Now, with these concepts in mind, let us turn to the status of these ideas at the time of the founding. History and religion were the traditional foundations of political life in the American colonies and elsewhere. Nature came much later. America's founders were the first to bring nature down from the realm of philosophy and introduce it into the political world as a primary intellectual foundation of a new kind of society. In doing so, they relegated history to a secondary role. This revolution on the plane of ideas was as momentous for the modern world as the political revolution inaugurated on the battlefield of Lexington and Concord. It became the thought heard around the world. If we are to understand the founding, we must understand this revolution. And to understand this revolution, we must consider the rival foundations of history and what the founders meant by that. There were at least three kinds of historical foundations that were available to the founders and which they ultimately either downplayed or rejected. The first was a version of sacred history that derived from the Puritan past. For the Puritans, history was a primary mode of expression as seen in the number of historical works written by the great Puritan thinkers. A few of the titles tell the story. History of New England, Winthrop, The Doctrine of Divine Providence, Increase Mather, The Ecclesiastical History, Cotton Mather, and History of uh, the Work of Redemption, Jonathan Edwards. And you can go on and on. The outpouring of historical works from such a small population is nothing short of remarkable. Remarkable, but not a result of chance or accident. The Puritans, and this is one of their great legacies, are chiefly responsible for the revival or reawakening of foundational history in the modern world. In discussing the origins of civilization, many scholars often speak of Jerusalem, referring to, the, to biblical religion, as the source of history, and Athens, referring to philosophy of science, as the source of nature. The Bible favors the idea of history. God acts in time, and it is in the temporal realm that his plan is revealed. The Israelites, for example, were instructed to look to a specific event, the Exodus, and to the commandments God issued at Sinai. In the words of the philosopher Rami Bragg, I guess we just spoke here two days ago, he wrote, the relationship of the Jews to the absolute did not pass through nature, but through history. Of course, it was not just reference to the past uh, that ties Jerusalem to history. It was also the development of the idea of a plan of history that is universal and that includes the future, 
a future when all will be redeemed. The idea of such a universal history, and that's the title of the famous book on philosophy of history by Kant, the title, uh, the idea was first noted in the book of Isaiah in chapter 14, verse 26, where he says, this is the design that is planned for the whole earth, and this is the plan that is stretched out over all of the nations. Now, the earliest Christians also thought in time and lived in full expectation of Christ's imminent return and of the end to come. But when this expectation was disappointed, the church began to stress a separation between the divine dimension of time and temporal events. The de-emphasis on the historical sense was accelerated by the absorption of classical philosophy into Christian thought. The combination of the two created Christian theology which focused less on history and more on the eternal characteristics of the divine. For medieval Christian thinkers, historical thinking played a secondary role. Now, the Puritans, as I said, reversed this and reintroduced history as a foundation. Among all the Protestant sects, the Puritans placed the most emphasis on the intimate relation between temporal events and the sacred. They were the strictest followers of scripture, and the closest to Jerusalem. Indeed, their aim in coming to America was to establish the new Jerusalem. Like the Israelites, they endowed their own historical experience with religious significance. Their travails began when they were in England, and in their flight from Europe to America, the Puritans were undertaking an errand in the wilderness in the servant of a new covenant with God. The fulfillment of their errand would be rewarded with the coming of the millennium. The mission of the Puritans was conceived, of course, as part of sacred, not profane history. It was directed not at building a great or powerful nation, but at achieving sanctity. Yet it was still the case that this great drama was unfolding among one people in one unlikely place, what Cotton Mather called that little country, New England. And as time went on, some began to connect this sacred concern more closely to a mission involving the fate of the American people in a more worldly sense. The divine plan, providence, envisaged the establishment of a great republic of liberty. As the American Revolution approached, historical religious thought, now more properly called Protestant than Puritan, <coughs> appeared in tracts and sermons, not the lengthy books that the Puritans had written. These sermons were immensely influential in preparing the way for the American Revolution. David Ramsey, one of the first historians of the American Revolution, wrote that the clergy of New England had great ascendancy over the minds of their hearers. They connected religion with patriotism, and their sermons and prayers represented the cause of America as the cause of heaven. Sacred historical thinking was part of this. Here's one example from a well-known sermon of the day. God pleads his own and his people's cause by his providence. Our cause is not only righteous, but most important, it is God's own cause. It is the grand cause of the whole human race. Now, as you know, historical religious thought on a variety, uh, expressed in a variety of different forms, has remained immensely important in American politics up to today. And direct lines can be traced between Puritan thinking and some of the later schools of sacred history. Nevertheless, by the middle of the 18th century, history was no longer considered exclusively a part of theology. It had become a discipline in its own right, independent of direct guidance by religion, and concerned chiefly with affairs of this world. 
More to the point, this new mode of thinking, uh, the thinking of the founders, was different from that of the Puritans. Although the founders speak occasionally of providence and express gratitude for indications of divine favor, their references when they're speaking in this way are almost always to matters that can be confirmed by rational understanding as well. Their focus in studying history was on its political, not on its theological dimensions. A second foundation in historical understanding is what has been called customary history. It is a form of history that identifies the old with the good or the right with the ancestral. Ideas that can be traced back to ancient or original times have the presumption of being good or just. This did not necessarily mean that the old times were better than the present times. There could be a kind of slow development. The original <coughs> germ or seed could grow like a mighty oak tree. But the kernel of what was good lay in the investigation of the original seed. Customary history was written uh, in books like straightforward history. But it's fairly clear that its purpose was almost always different from a scientific account of what actually happened. It was more myth dressed up as history. It usually had a clear political end to prop up or make good some particular political orientation by finding its roots in the past. There were different uh, subvariants of this uh, form of customary history. One strand, favored by moderate Whigs in England, claimed that right derived from the ancient English documents and charters, which the British government was said to be violating. And this was the, 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 the standard upon which uh, the um, quest for the revolution began. This line was developed, uh, that this was a character of English history, developed by Cook and Blackstone, uh, the school in which so many revolutionary leaders were schooled. It emphasized the traditional rights of Englishmen as grounded in ancient charters, and it, of course, supported a, uh, a limited monarchy. Many of the early tracks leading to the revolution followed this line of argument, which also is found, of course, in large part of the Declaration of Independence. And it was the basis of resistance in the 1760s through the period of the Sugar Act and the Stamp Act in the early part of the uh, 1770s. Almost all the secular texts that rallied opposition to British policy in this period stated arguments of this sort. But as the prospect of separation from Britain approached, an obvious practical difficulty appeared in relying on a British historical argument. How could one easily uh, break from Britain when the idea of right was tied to the British Constitution? And how could one hope to establish a republican system when the idea of right was still tied to monarchy? This prompted many to begin to realize that this foundational idea could no longer work. And it was that in, in the Continental Congress which led John Adams to plead, as he put it, very strenuously for insisting on the law of nature as a resource to which we will be driven by Parliament sooner than later. But, of course, this was not the end of customary history. Customary history uh, seems on first encounter to be conservative and to support the existing order, as the existing order can always locate itself sometime in past history. But if you look at traditionalist societies, you see that there's a way to undermine the existing order, which is to appeal to one that is still more ancient. And this is exactly what happened. There was another version of customary history, already in use in England by those who opposed monarchy, 
and which favored Republican government. Americans took this over and adapted it to their cause. And this, of course, seemed to solve the problem. It was based on what uh, was known at the time as the Gothic or Barbarian Thesis, which claimed that behind the existing English Constitution, there lay an older or more original Constitution, truly Republican in character, our genuine seed, which the Saxons had brought with them from the forests of Germany, a famous line um, used by Montesquieu and Gibbons and others. It was there in the forests of Germany that true Republican liberty originated. The source for this view was Tacitus Germanica, Germania, which described the simple freedom-loving characteristics of the, de uh, of the decentralized barbarian Germanic tribe. Jefferson and others embraced this foundational position. Jefferson, who uh, I'll cite on the side of almost every foundation, it's nice that he's the uh, founding figure of the University of Virginia that allows students when they uh, cite him to find something on every side of every argument. <laughs> but he lauded, along with others, our Saxon ancestors, who he said left their native wilds and woods in the north of Europe to come to Britain and to establish a system of laws which has so long been the glory and, and protection of, of that country. Two years later, he urged that we return at once into that happy system of our ancestors, the wisest and most perfect yet devised by the wit of man as it stood in the 8th century. In this argument, the Americans were the truest heirs of the Gothic tradition. The culture of Gothicism moved with the Saxons from Germany to England and then to America. A later pamphlet uh, was called The Puritans, the Goths of New England. <laughs> now, because of this position's opposition to monarchy, it managed to survive the revolutionary period. And in fact, it became a great theme of American political thought until the world wars of the 20th century, when the German forests lost much of their luster as well as their foliage. <laughs> There's much to say about uh, customary history in its Gothic form and other forms. It was, as I said, one of the most prominent foundation used within the 19th century. It changed and went through different uh, uh, variants. I think the most uh, important variant, variant that we are aware of is ascribing the germ of goodness not so much to the Goths as to the Puritans themselves. In the 1830s, members of the Whig Party in the United States invented or recreated, and Tocqueville was part of this, uh, recreated the idea of two founding an older founding, a Puritan founding, which was just as important, if not important, as the founding of 1776 and 1787. And I believe that this idea is still alive today, that is uh, uh, customary history, as the foundation of uh, the movement called communitarianism. There's an interesting uh, element to this Gothic history argument. It is that constitutionalism derives from barbarian <laughs> habits and practices, today we might say culture, rather than from any theoretical or philosophical principle. Liberty is not a creation of philosophy or science, but an accident that relies more on mores and habits and sentiments and inarticulate things. Hence, all the opponents of natural right are drawn to something like customary history. But in the end, customary history 
was not at the center of the argument of the founders. If nature is the primary foundation, then the old or the ancestral cannot be the highest standard. What is old may perhaps be respected insofar as it is reasonable, and for prudential reasons it may, be, may even be accorded a measure of deference. But in the final analysis, political decisions should be grounded, as we've already uh, seen from the initial quotation this evening, on reflection and choice, that is, uh, philosophy rather than accident. An accident could be customary history. Madison asks, is it not the glory of the people of America that while they have paid a decent regard to the opinions of former times and other nations, they have not suffered a blind veneration for antiquity, for custom, or for names? Now, I speak, I've spoken of two forms of foundational history, sacred history and customary history. There was a third and final version of foundational history, just coming, uh, becoming known at the time of the founding, and that was the invention of philosophy of history, something that occurred in the middle of the 18th century. The tracks that derived from this mode of thought did not look so much like history as they did a reordering of all of time according to certain philosophical categories. Its most prominent advocates reasoned in universal categories, and they organized their treatment of the past in broad conceptual stages that had little in common with what had been known previously as history. They spoke of passages and stages, ten stages of the human development, specific narrative accounts focusing on the deeds of great heroes, uh, took a back seat to grand statements of universal laws of development. In fact, this is curious, philosophy of history was concerned more with the future than the past, as it interpreted the past in light of the future. A th full theoretical statement of philosophy of history really didn't appear in the, uh, until the 1780s in the writings of Condorcet and some of the German philosophers, such as Kant and Schiller. The idea of a law of, prog of progress, entered the dialogue of American politics during the constitutional debates in the 1780s. And of course, in the 1790s, with the onset of the French Revolution, philosophy of history, which was widely considered by the Federalists as the primary, primary foundational idea behind the French Revolution, became a major theme in American politics and the most important intellectual element in the formation of political parties. Federalist being the party opposed to philosophy of history, the Jeffersonian Republicans, at least in the eyes of Federalists, said to be proponents of it. Philosophy of history held that the movement of things in human history was a form of data continuous with other observable data in nature. Just as the natural sciences had discovered laws of motion respecting the property of physical things, how physical bodies move, so there was, to cite uh, Condorcet, Jefferson's friend, so there was a science that could foresee the progress of humankind, direct it, and accelerate it. In other words, man could know the future. The dominant understanding, as articulated best by Condorcet, was that history was subject <coughs> to a constant law of progress. Philosophy of history, in its boldest statements, had little regard for the past. It had a prejudice against the past, which was, was viewed as obscurantist. Progress came not by growth from past germs, but by rejection of the past, an idea which already fit in with the Enlightenment idea of a prejudice against prejudice. 
This view was held by certain American intellectuals, Jefferson, of course, among them, especially after his stay in France. Others in his party followed. Here's a nice uh, statement from Jefferson, seemingly uh, contradicting what he had said earlier about uh, Gothic history. He wrote this to Joseph Priestley in 1800, but it's a beautiful statement of the the idea of progressive history. The Gothic idea that we were to look backwards instead of forwards for the improvement of the human mind and recur to the annals of, of our ancestors for what is most perfect in government, in religion, and in learning is worthy of those bigots in religion and government by whom it has been recommended and whose purposes it would answer. Now, if you put Jefferson uh, to one side, one would have to say that the dominant view of the major founders was one of stark opposition to anything like philosophy of history and to, uh, opposition to a law of progress. The founders, referring here in this case chiefly to the authors of the Federalists, rejected any notion of an imminent process of movement towards progress inside history. They mentioned this idea, by way of rebutting it, in two contexts in the Federalist Papers. One is Jefferson's plan for a periodic rewriting of the Constitution, which Madison gently but firmly dismisses as imprudent. It was in this context as well, and of course this idea of rewriting the Constitution seems to reflect the idea of progress. Each generation should write a Constitution in part because it will write a better one than the past generation. And it's in this context that Madison not only rejected a, a prejudice against the old, but claimed on the contrary that attached to uh, good objects like the Constitution, it was better to have such a sentiment than not. His famous statement, the most rational government will not find it a superfluous advantage to have the prejudices of the community on its side. The idea of philosophy in the Federalists was also criticized in the form of the prognostications that some held of a coming era of perpetual peace. Hamilton denounced this view as a dangerous uh, product of speculators, projectors, and utopians. In his view, if the great problem of security and international affairs was said to be resolving themselves on their own, which of course is a view of progress, if we're moving towards peace, they're resolving them on their own, then there was much less need for a strong central government and much less need for a powerful executive to cope with the challenges of a permanently chaotic world. History would take care of all these difficulties. No view, I think, was uh, political life was more inimical to the understanding of the founders. The data here, then, uh, I would say, are the three foundations of history, all of which were present and were used, but none emerged as, a, as the dominant foundation in founders' thought. But it was clearly not enough to substitute nature for history and leave the space of foundational history simply open and unresponded to. There had to be another understanding of the temporal process, one that made sense of it in such a way that history was not offered as a foundation. In other words, there had to be an alternative to foundational history. The founders downplayed history, meaning the attempt to locate a standard of right in the realm of time, but they were by no means inattentive to, to ordinary history. On the contrary, they not only gave great weight to history, but they were instrumental in transforming American historiography along the line, along lines that sought to make it, make it into a new and rational discipline. 
along with a group of new historians, who I think you can call founders as well, that included Jeremy Belknap, David Ramsey, John Marshall, Mercy Otis Warren, jo uh, William Gordon, Abiel Holmes, and Timothy Pitkin. Along with them, the authors of The Federalists can also be counted part of this new school of rational history, as the authors of The Federalists helped to articulate some of its basic premises. Here, in brief uh, fashion, I'll list five of the premises of this new school of rational history. First, history was no longer mapped on the basis of how events fit into a providential plan. Without questioning the truth of religion, many of these writers were in fact ministers that I mentioned, their attention in uh, this history was fixed on profane matters, in particular on the establishment of Republican government in America. Second, their methods differed as well. These rationalist historians sought the causes of historical events in natural and human sources, not in divine intervention. While they occasionally acknowledged providence, its operation, if, uh, if this is the correct term for them, its operation designated general observable contexts and trends, at least so far as they could be seen to the uh, rational eye. Third, while acknowledging that liberty had roots in colonial practice and English traditions, these rational historians saw the ultimate justification of the revolution in reason and in the principles of nature. Actually, they showed very little interest in tracing liberty to its ancient uh, source uh, in the Goths or in the forests of Germany, which they regarded as myth being mythical. Without demeaning the past, they placed their emphasis on the novelty of the American Revolution. As Abiel Holmes observes at the beginning of his work, a new world has been discovered, a new empire has arisen, which has been a theater of great actions and stupendous events. Fourth, the founders and rationalist historians taken together also took issue with the main theoretical premise of philosophy of history. The course of history, in their view, had no definite shape or structure that could be known in advance. The temporal realm, the historical realm, was open-ended, presenting possibilities of progress in a new Republican era, but also no certainties. In the words of uh, Mercy Warren, we are inadequate to any calculation on future events. The ways of heaven are hidden in the depths of time, and a small circumstance frequently gives a new turn, turn to the most palpable contingencies that seem to measure the fate of men and empires. In fact, the Federalist Papers itself, while a political book, is written in this way. It's a form of drama, a drama introduced by the, the statement which Mr. Vaughan suggested right at the beginning. What is going to happen? Uh, the test is for us to decide. And the outcome is unsure. The outcome depends not on any laws of history, but on chance and especially on the free actions of human beings. Finally, Fifth, the rationalist historians differed from philosophy of history in a more fundamental way. They did not ask history any longer to carry the burden of supplying ultimate justification or final meaning. These writers' innovation was to assign history a more modest role than it had previously held. They thought it sought a theoretical balance or equilibrium between nature and history, in which history had the subordinate position. Now, um, having completed the, the section on history, I want to spend a few minutes on nature. 
the other foundation. In rejecting history as the foundation, the founders turned to nature. In light of the later emphasis on this fact, we are apt to regard it uh, as quite uncontroversial. This is just how things were and unimportant. But in fact, many at the time among the founders doubted the wisdom or questioned the wisdom of taking the step of moving to the foundation of nature. Some argued that uh, using the argument from nature would have a destabilizing effect on a political order by depreciating traditional allegiances and throwing everything open to constant questions of reason. And what's uh, more productive of chaos than asking everyone to reason? Others took a very different view and thought that an appeal to nature would be utterly inefficacious. It wouldn't work. Nature is the language of philosophers or scientists, not of ordinary citizens, who cannot be moved by cold reasoning. An appeal to nature, therefore, would lack the capacity to hold the beliefs of men. It did not appeal, like religion or foundational history, to the heart or to the sentiment. It was too weak. The founders must have thought differently. Not myth, mystery, or history, but philosophy or science, and at the time the two terms were synonymous, could serve, perhaps in a simplified version, as a public foundational concept. There could, in other words, be public philosophy. A foundation in nature could build support for a properly constituted government, fortifying citizens' attachments by reminding people of the legitimate ends of government and their rational consent to it. Now, it's all well and fine to make a claim like this, but what was meant by the concept of nature? What did it mean to embrace nature as a foundation? Now, nature, as it was understood at this time, is a difficult concept for us to grasp today, less because of the complications and differences of opinions that existed, although they were both considerable, less because of that than because its original meaning has become utterly distorted by successive, success, successive intellectual campaigns that have been directed against the founders' understanding of nature, especially by the progressives, who succeeded in labeling this concept as metaphysical, where metaphysical is regarded as a term of pure fantasy or derision. John Dewey found the whole theory of nature to be located in the clouds. In fact, however, at the time of the founding, the concept of nature was widely regarded to be the product of science, and it represented a turn away from mythical, theological, or obscure cosmological thinking. The science that existed for shorthand, can be referred to as politicalized psychology. That's a neologism because I can't speak of political psychology, a modern field, but it was a science that I'm going to call politicalized psychology. The concept of nature derived in large part from a science that, in fact, no longer exists. This science rested on a body of knowledge that began from elements of what we today call psychology, the primary substance or matter of nature to be studied was human nature or the psychological makeup of human beings. This substance was then treated within a form of logical or hypothetical reasoning directly related to the question of how to put together a stable political order. By performing certain mental experiments, individuals could see the logic of a reciprocal exchange of rights and obligations 
in order to form and maintain allegiance to a properly constituted political order. The aim of this science, in other words, was not to develop a knowledge of pure psychology. That's why uh, the word rights uh, is not a term of psychology. It's a term of politics. It wasn't to develop a knowledge of pure psychology, but to use aspects of psychology in combination with political reasoning to demonstrate how a successful political community might be constructed. Uh, that was the science. Other understandings of nature, of course, also existed among the founders. Nature and natural law had meanings that stretched back to classical philosophy and to earlier Christian sources. Even when religious thinkers adopted a different understanding of, uh, of psychological motivations than some of the scientific proponents, they often nevertheless proceeded in the same, uh, same way, constructing a political community from a combination of psychology and political reasoning, only introducing Christian themes, such as man's sinful nature or the natural status of the community, into their analysis. While there were considerable differences in the understanding of the concept of nature, there was widespread support for seeking a rational source of guidance for the political world from this new science. Now, part of what the founders understood by nature, I think, can, can be seen by comparing it to subsequent views of nature that occurred over the course of American history. As I recall, every science has its own view of nature, and the founders was only one of them. Let me remind you, therefore, and point to some of the other sciences and standards of nature which uh, became important as foundations over the course of American history. First, there was a science based on natural history or early biology. It argued that the most important thing about the natural uh, world of man was that human beings were divided into different subgroups or varieties des uh, designated roughly by ethnic groups or races, and that the most important thing to note about these different subgroups was their unequal status. From this, the natural view was uh, evolved, that people from different subgroups should not live together in the same community, or that people from different subgroups should not miscegenize or marry, or finally, in the most extreme version of this, that it was natural that one group, uh, white, should be able to enslave another. A second understanding of uh, nature derived from Darwinian biology, which argued that all of nature was a struggle, and uh, the survival of the fittest was the proper rule and understanding of nature. And another view associated with uh, physics and biology, which was found to some extent with the Jeffersonians and uh, others later with biology, was that somehow in the working of the cosmology, there was a principle of spontaneous order at work, such that if things were left to themselves, they would tend to result in a situation of harmony, a very important argument that was applied to the science of economics and through the science of economics applied to politics and the philosophy known as libertarianism. Now, by comparison to these views, the founders' conception of nature was first very limited in its direct application. It offered instruction on the ends or purposes of government, on part of the standard of right, and on a few essential elements about the structure of government. But deductions from nature could not provide direct guidance on many of the essential elements of the Constitution, nor on most policies facing the country. In other words, the founders did not reason from natural law 
to most conclusions regarding politics. That was to be left to statesmanship or ordinary political science. The limited character of natural law can be seen from the Federalists, where the foundation of nature is referred to in setting the basic ends, but where the deductive logic from natural law plays a, a relatively minor role. Contrast this with how doctrines of nature and natural law were used afterwards, in which full areas of policy uh, on almost all matters of American politics, economic and social, were said to be derived, capable of being derived from understanding of nature. Second, the founder's concept of nature, derived from a body of knowledge, that knowledge I call political psychology, politicalized psychology, uh, that applied only to human and political things. It did not derive from physics or biology referring to animals or plants. In the Federalist, the founders speak of different sciences relative to different spheres of human activities. They reject the notion of a single meta-science. The laws of nature and political life, because they involve man in the political setting, are thus of a different kind and sort than the laws of nature in the physical realm. And again, how different this is from later understandings of nature, where understandings of physical matter and laws of physical matter are taken from these sciences and then applied to the realm of politics. Well, um, you have a right, uh, albeit perhaps not a natural one, to ask about the relevance of this discussion of foundations to our situation today. The connection is indirect, but not without significance. The founders' foundational thought provide, provided many of the seminal ideas and building blocks for later variations of foundational ideas about history and about nature in American political thought. Theirs is not the end of the story, but it certainly is the proper place to begin the investigation of these issues. It is in any case obvious that debate on foundations remains a central component in our politics today. It is at the core of the division between our two political parties, wherein the Republican Party has recently articulated or re-articulated a conception of nature as a foundation, seconded by religion, while Democrats, if I read the message of the party accurately, generally abjure the application of any kind of foundation to political life. The positions of the two parties reflect, reflect the great debate taking place within contemporary political theory. A major school of political theory, perhaps even the dominant one in the academy, opposes foundations in modern liberal democratic society. This school is known as anti-foundationalism or political non-foundationalism. It has several streams or currents. It holds as the first argument that foundations of any kind are simply unnecessary to modern politics. We have come to an age of maturity and we can live now without them. They are relics of the past. In fact, according to one philosopher in this group, Richard Rorty, uh, who began his career at Princeton before making a striking step of choosing downward mobility and went to the University of Virginia. <laughs> According to Richard uh, Rorty, these foundations have actually not been that important for a very long time. In his words, I quote, the idea that liberal societies are bound together by philosophical belief seems to me to be ludicrous. Philosophy is not that important for politics. But as so many anti-foundationalist thinkers, Rorty included, 
have devoted pages, nay volumes, nay their whole careers, to inveighing against foundations. I have difficulty taking them at their word on this point. The real core of the modern non-foundationalist argument is not that foundations are insignificant or inconsequential, but rather, on the contrary, that they are highly consequential and that they cause enormous harm. By claiming some kind of knowledge of standards beyond simple community opinion, it's, it's said, those who speak of foundations promote dogmatic and rigid thinking. They are undemocratic. In addition, we are societies of great diversity, and we cannot therefore share such ideas, uh, first principles, anyhow. Social peace will be found by overlapping consensus. At most, we may need not foundations, but are what are called narratives to hold us together. These are stories we tell ourselves, recognizing that they are only stories. Well, not myself being in the field of political philosophy, I cannot claim to have read all this literature. But from what I have read, uh, I have been struck by one point that has to do not with the conclusion, but with the method of argumentation. Despite calling themselves pragmatists frequently, these thinkers show little or no inclination to examine the pragmata, meaning the record of actual historical cases, like the founding, in which foundational ideas have been used. We have, in political theory today, theorizing that is divorced from experience. Survey the literature and you'll see that many of the greatest works have practically no reference point to actual facts or data. Take a look, for example, at the index of John Rawls' classic political liberalism, and you will see Adams listed once, but the reference is to a contemporary academic named Robert Adams, not John. Thomas Jefferson appears twice, once in a footnote. All this would be of no consequence if the discussion of foundational ideas referred merely to formal arguments of political theory with no reference to the political world. But the intent of these theorists is to be relevant to American politics. Now, we in political science, as distinct from political theory, would think it odd in, in the extreme if someone sought to study political parties or Congress without bothering to, to inquire how these institutions actually function. Is it not equally strange to encounter learned discussion of foundational ideas that do not consult the record of how they have been used? The fault here, however, lies not with the philosophers and theorists who, in avoiding the study of reality, are only following their own nature. Nor is this group known much for its intellectual modesty. It is made clear to political scientists that political scientists should stick to the study of congressional committees and post offices, while the study of foundations should remain with the philosophers. The shame in all of this is that political scientists have allowed themselves to be scared off from practical investigation of this political reality. Now, at this point, I have yet to be convinced by the non-foundationalist argument. They have rightly pointed out the great dangers and abuses that have been attached to claims of certain foundations. But who really needed instruction on this point? The real question is not whether some uh, foundations have created abuses but whether the solution would come from eliminating any kind of foundation at all. Or to make an analogy, we know that political power and authority has been productive of abuses. That's not news. But does it follow that the solution would be to eliminate political power? 
It is a strange claim that divides the world into two great eras, an epoch of the dark age of foundationalism and the millennium of the era of non-foundationalism that arrived with John Dewey or John Rawls. The actual consequences of an experiment with non-foundationalism can only be guessed at. Some have wondered whether the effect of this would be to leave a vacuum at the center of political life that might eventually be filled by a more dangerous alternative, as once occurred when very vicious ideologies replaced the skepticism that was found in the new democracies of Europe in the 1920s and 1930s. Alternatively, some have argued that the real problem with anti-foundationalism would become apparent if it actually managed to take hold of public life then the result might be a nation that was listless, apathetic, and lacking in all resolve. Such a solution might well work for nations that have already purchased their ticket to get off the train of history. But would it work for a nation which has serious responsibilities and must achieve an added measure of resolve to pursue difficult missions? For those who doubt that the real choice is between foundationalism and non-foundationalism, the use of the term foundationalism itself is almost an absurdity. The real question, the only meaningful question, is which foundation or package of foundations is the sound and appropriate one for our political life. To paraphrase James Madison, we need to find a foundational solution to the problems incident to foundational thinking. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Caesar, for that wonderfully uh, rich and provocative uh, lecture. Uh, we have a custom and a tradition in the Madison uh, program to begin by giving students, undergraduates and graduate students, an opportunity for questions. Uh, this includes our uh, cadet friends from uh, West Point. So uh, the floor is open in the first uh, instance for student questions. Would anybody like to, uh, to launch us? Yeah, uh, Michael Watson. Well, I only spoke of two of the three, uh, partly for time, um, partly for lack of, of, uh, of, of uh, detailed knowledge in this field, and also because of the complication of religion, because 
religion I presented as one foundation, but when you analyze it, it really breaks down into two categories, I would say. Religious thinking that, uh, as it were, takes place inside the realm of historical analysis. Uh, Providential thinking and sacred history, where it's the same space as what I've called history. Um, And uh, in this uh, form of religious thinking, the the question uh, that is asked is whether the United States has some sacred role inside of a divine plan. The other form of, uh, of uh, analysis of religion um, would take place inside the same space as philosophy or nature. It would be uh, categories or analysis of what is the, uh, the character of the permanent order, um, uh, the character of the permanent order or revelations about the permanent order. Well, what I tried to suggest uh, uh, so, so I left out religion for, for the, the difficulties of treating it. I would see, of course, perfect consistency being uh, capable, uh, possible between understandings of religion and understandings of nature. In fact, what I tried to allude to at the, uh, in the discussion of the issue of the, of the founding, there's no reason why issues of religion can't be treated and discussed as natural properties. One of the criticisms of uh, some of the religious thinkers of um, uh, the more scientific understanding of nature was that uh, its model of science was right. Uh, You try and derive the political community from the character of human beings, but the understanding of psychology was flawed. And the understanding of psychology um, uh, missed something that religion had found. Now, the fact that something derives from revelation is... uh, it's not a reason why it can't also be corroborated by reason. And I think this was the view that, uh, that some took. They said, look at the character of human beings. What some of the philosophic conceptions miss are two things. They miss the notion of human sin as being a permanent f- feature of human beings, and that can be seen without necessarily uh, uh, going back to Revelation. It may have, we may have understood this on the basis of Revelation, some would say, but the analysis of this as a proposition of human psychology can be corroborated by um, at least the outward manifestations by a, a psychological analysis. So uh, I would think that there would be important ways uh, to put, the, to put the, the, the two together. And um, uh, certainly in the, um, uh, let's say, beginning in the 1790s, um, the response of the, many in the Federalist parties um, was to try and buttress conceptions of nature with the backing of uh, religion for some of the reasons that you mentioned. Next question. Yes, I'm in. Uh, that's that's the position of anti-foundationalism. Um, yeah. So um, I I just bring this up because we discussed that Robert Smith stories that people would uh, just hoping could explain what that narrative would provide that foundation. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. I, at this point, I was speaking of of the, uh, the this let's say very amorphous, but I think dominant school in modern political thought, mm-hmm. which. Um, I call um, either anti-foundation or political non-foundationalism, which is a group of modern philosophers, all of whom take the idea that something like strong foundations, nature and history, um, 
are uh, either not necessary or, more importantly, are actually injurious to modern, uh, uh, modern democratic societies. And I take that to be an important position today uh, that's reflected inside a large part of the intellectual community and inside of the, uh, the, the Democratic Party. Um, uh, and it's one of the reasons why this group is so hostile, not just to the particular policies of the Republican, but to the way the Republicans think and, uh, and approach politics. For Republicans, uh, for, for many Republicans, the invocation of foundations is something they're, uh, they're comfortable with. They disagree amongst themselves about which foundations are right, and they have wars, but the idea that you would invoke foundations doesn't seem to be in any way an aberration. For many, uh, on the other side, this itself is the, the source of the problem. But some of them saying, well, we don't need foundations, but we need a little something to form the glue that holds us together. I'm speaking now of this philosopher, very famous and eminent philosopher, Richard Rorty. Um, and so uh, no longer believing that anything like progress is in the very nature of history itself, which would be a foundational argument, they say, well, we can't speak of a strong foundation, but what we can do is we can create narratives uh, that uh, lots of people will read and like, and for the time being, this will hold us together. Instead of writing history, they write narratives. They, they might be called narrativicians rather than historians, and R Richard Gordy is the, the country's greatest narrativician. And uh, the idea is that uh, many people telling the same stories in the same way will give us a kind of consensus of what we think without having to go to the question of foundations. It reminds me of this uh, uh, con conference on international human rights um, where uh, one philosopher said, yeah, we agree on everything just so long as we don't say the reason why. And uh, this is so something what is you find the, the common consensus uh, of this, of what would constitute uh, uh, these constant overlapping telling of, uh, of stories. And that's what is meant by a narrative. And a narrative, it's a kind of weak word, because you might uh, think of yourself as uh, being willing to sacrifice. Well, you say you're in the military, so to sacrifice for a cause or a foundation or something like that. But uh, who would sacrifice themselves for a narrative? Well, I wonder, ma'am, you made reference at the end to Roger Smith, the uh, contemporary political uh, thinker. Was that a reference to his work on citizenship? Is that what you've been reading? Uh, so we were just, uh, it was more of a personal research paper that uh, personal topic that I chose, but we just, um, we just talked about how he just showed me the stories of people that I know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, good. So. Okay, let's throw the floor open now uh, generally. Yes, David Oakley. What And Publius, too. Yes, yeah, right. Um, yes. Well, keep in mind at all points this uh, confusion that can be introduced on the meaning of the word history. And that's uh, really a, a dilemma. The Germans have two words um, and many, many books on history. Um, you can find them on the library. So um, it's always important to, to keep the, the two distinct. What's a valid historical analysis versus using something as, a, as a, a, a way to try and derive meaning from something that occurs in, in time. And um, 
uh, th that's the, the starting point I would make of, of any such analysis. And as to the role of, uh, of Rome, uh, I wanted to say something now uh, about uh, actually the barbarian thesis, or what I call the Gothic thesis, and its view of, of philosophy in Rome. I mentioned uh, in the course of this that the, uh, those who established, uh, believed in customary history, uh, believed that the foundation of liberty uh, was not found in anything philosophical or legal. Uh, and what that meant is that it was not found in modern Enlightenment philosophy. It wasn't found in Hobbes or Locke. It also meant that it wasn't found in ancient political philosophy, that is, Aristotle and republicanism. And it finally meant that it wasn't found in Rome and Roman thought, which was seen to be in some ways derivative of uh, Greek philosophy or rational thought. Um, so there was a powerful critique of anything that emanated from, uh, from, from uh, philosophy on the grounds, and here was the reasoning, that anything like this uh, resulted in political absolutism. And it's probably true, uh, with a few rare exceptions, that over the course of history, those we'd name, would be, we would name as being rationalists and philosophers have more often supported uh, forms of enlightened despotism than they have Republican government. So this would uh, then raise the question of which Rome the founders were interested in. And it wasn't, of course, the imperial Rome. It was the Republican Rome that uh, served in some way as their model. Having said that, I, I think it was an interesting uh, element, but not a, not a central element to the, to the founding. Uh, Professor Holland? Um. Well, that, uh, that the world was created as a permanent thing and has this characteristic, and has these characteristics, and that human beings as part of it have these characteristics, could uh, be perfectly compatible with nature and nature's God. That the God of nature, now the God of nature has created the world in, its, in this way, and uh, therefore the two are uh, far from being uh, opposed. Uh, are one and the same. The question now becomes whether more is added to the concept of nature by what you call metaphysical. Um, what, what is it that is added uh, specifically? What, what, what's the, the, the surplus that comes into being? And, 
And here, here's um, maybe where difficulty, I won't speak of the founders, but a difficulty uh, begins to emerge. Um, some people say, well, okay, there's a cosmological order, uh, but then what's the character of the cosmological order? The notion of a cosmological order being, let's say, a, a stoic idea or something like that. There is some, some cosmological order. From this mode of reasoning, uh, that uh, all of uh, the, the, uh, the natural or physical world produces order, you begin to get certain very strange properties of nature, which I don't think were characteristic of the Federalists. In particular, the first one that emerged from this way of thinking, a revival of, Sto of Stoicism under this label of metaphysics, is the, uh, is the notion that inside of uh, the uh, human order of things, things have left to themselves work out well on their own. That is, if you don't tamper with nature, now using nature as natural, uh, things will tend to work out. That is, that there's a spontaneous order. And this principle of spontaneous order, um, which is the same principle, really, you could say, as the invisible hand in economics, things left to themselves work out on their own without human interference, uh, became a, a more and more important um, uh, interpretation of, of, uh, of nature in the 19th century with consequences that I think that the founders would have, uh, would have uh, treated, which would have seen as being quite dangerous. For the most part, they want to uh, sequester uh, human and political things from the rest of the, the world, because if the rest of the world may exhibit some degree of harmony, it's not true of the, uh, the human condition that we can count on automatic harmony. I don't see how you can read the Federalist Papers and see underneath it that there's an automatic principle which produces harmony. And it becomes a great flaw of human reasoning to take some physical principle or cosmological principle and apply it to politics. Then you begin to use nature in a much broader sense than the founders did, and you begin to use it in a way that works against uh, their view, which is that uh, in the human realm, we have to take care of things for ourselves. So. Uh, this wanders a little bit from your question, but it gets to the, to the question of how are we going to think of, of a principle of nature productively inside of the, the human order in a way in which it can do some work for grounding a society, but in which uh, it does, doesn't result that principles taken from uh, realms outside of politics are introduced as the principles that can govern us in politics. I, I believe this is the great flaw of economic thinking applied to politics. It's the great flaw of one strand of libertarianism. Why is there something like spontaneous order? I know that it may exist in economics. Is that any proof whatsoever that exists in politics? I look at the political world, and far from seeing spontaneous order, I see as much chaos as order. And this, I think, is the principle of Hamilton in the Federalist Papers. That's his starting point. Whatever one might say about economics and the science of economics or physics and its understanding of natural order, by gosh, that doesn't apply to what we know in the political world. Professor Watson? Uh, yeah, let me ask you a question that's partly uh, theoretical and partly uh, practical when it appeals to your um, political production. So, really, uh, as a political scientist, partly not rather than a political theorist, perhaps, uh, maybe it's this. Uh, it seems to me that um, you know, where the rubber meets the road on, on questions of foundationalism nowadays, practically uh, speaking, foundationalism
Yeah, well, you could partly clarify things, but you could partly muddy them. On this side, I think I'm a Georgian. Um, you can see Ravi's article in Vital Remnants, right? Is that uh, uh, there might be room for a political foundation uh, uh, of which I spoke, but it's not necessarily the case that it would be uh, the ground of, of most uh, forms of judicial reasoning. Because the uh, uh, th that is directly applied in judicial reasoning. It's not necessarily the case that that would follow. The, this goes to this question of this, this limited and very careful role for, for, for nature and what, uh, uh, in, in establishing the ends and character of government, but not necessarily being uh, the guiding factor in all affairs and not necessarily telling us exactly what the character of our institution should be. The character of the institutions is reasoned out mostly through political science, not through, through natural right propositions. I mean, look at the Federalist Papers. How often do they uh, reason? from natural rights to uh, the exact role of the institutions. In fact, um, there was a large debate on this uh, uh, at the time because those who uh, adopted certain principles of nature said, well, from nature we can get the character of constitutions. This was an argument made by some of the French uh, um, Condorcet and endorsed by some Americans that on the principle of nature, everything should be simple and geometric. Therefore, there should only be one house to the legislature. And these were the people who supported the Pennsylvania Constitution. Uh, Adams and, and, uh, said, no, political science is, part, is separate from this. N nature is, is relevant for certain things, but not for others, and not for uh, establishing directly the, uh, the character of our institutions. So uh, on the judicial question, um, you know, th this would be a, 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 there's something to what you say, but this would open up a can of reason, a, a can of worms. I still think the question is, under a constitutional frame of government, what is the role of the judge and the justice in, uh, 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 in, in performing his office? And what role does that entail for the application of, uh, of uh, foundations? And it might be far less broad than many think, even if someone believes in foundations. I agree with that. Yes, that's the, think, uh, the, yeah. the thesis of your well, argument in point, vital uh, remnants. I'm a cesarean. Uh, <laughs> Professor <laughs>
Um, well, uh, I, I, I don't want to say that all politics consists of philosophy. That's an absurd proposition. I don't believe it. <laughs> this isn't the, the primary cause of most things in human affairs. It is interesting, that, nevertheless, uh, that political people see fit to introduce these things. And this is why I started with the with observing. These political actors, let's assume that some sense they're rational. They're not going to talk about philosophic matters unless they think that it plays some role and does some work inside of politics. It's not the only thing because they talk about lots of other things. They do talk about civility. Why would they mention this? It could be that they're just deluded. But they seem to think that this is very important, not just for getting things straight for uh, posterity, but for moving human beings and for establishing orders that uh, the commitment to these principles plays a role. And, and this is what we would examine by looking to see whether the, the articulation of these principles uh, plays such a role. Now, um, as I said, it's not the only cause, but certainly the, the place that one would want to look in this would be the 1850s, where, where this becomes, uh, you could say these, fun, these foundational questions move to the center of, of political debate. What are the campaigns, uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates about or the campaign of 1860, but this. Um, Lincoln takes this. Lincoln would previously been something of a, of a Whig and a, uh, an advocate of customary history. Suddenly in the 1850s, uh, ch changes, and he says, we have to move to the center of politics, what he called this philosophical public opinion. Was he wrong or deluded? Uh, uh, was this unimportant? And of course, in, in this issue, I think he would say to you that uh, in this situation, this was more important than civility, because, as everyone knows, the Southerners were far more civil than the Northerners. <laughs> but we'll have time for one final question from Professor Gibson. Yeah, that would be much much closer to what I, I, experience is a synonym, a synonym for what I call rational history. That is, and, and uh, you know, many people argue that rational speculation leads us astray, but uh, rational history can teach us important things. But that's different from this idea uh, that history, which I call foundational history, and which is often seen in, in uh, philosophic works as history with a capital H that there are laws in, in, inside, interior to history itself, that provide a source of movement and direction, and that supply meaning. I don't see anything of that in Dickinson. I think he's saying that we can, uh, it's a Humean statement, that from experience, um, we can learn political science. We, we can learn uh, uh, the relationships of things in a very practical way. Yeah. Because they are using history as a vehicle from which to 
I, I see your point. I, I would only say that um, they were part of this at the same time that they advocated this philosophical principle of nature, which, as I tried to argue, played a, a fairly important but still limited role. At the same time that they did this, they were firm advocates of a new understanding of history. If you read histories of history, the people who actually study how is the craft of discipline of history written from the Puritans through today, what you find is that they locate at the time of the founding a, a, a new group of historians of which the Federalists are part that want to view history as a fully rational enterprise experience so that we can learn from it and apply it in a rational way to the study of institutions. Not to use history merely to help one partisan side or another as in customary history and not to look at it as important as it may be from other respects as the story of how God is working his way through human affairs which may be important but it's not relevant. They were uh, a part of this revolution, and, and uh, people who study the founding, I'd really commend them uh, to, to the study of these historians who are actually readable today, far more readable than many 19th century historians in terms of taste. I'm speaking of people like Ramsey and John Marshall. It sometimes is a little bit dull, but it's perfectly consistent with rational understandings of history. As distinct from the romantic historians of the 19th century, who produce great histories like Bancroft, but sweeps of the of human which are, are being pushed by uh, providential forces, which don't speak to us in this rational sense. So I would think what I uh, maybe should have developed this better is there's a lot more consistency between that history of uh, rational experience and what I've called studies of nature. There's a lot more consistency between those two and that they are compatible uh, as distinct from the forms of history which I call foundational history. Before inviting you to join me in thanking uh, Professor Caesar, let me just pause for a brief commercial advertisement. I want to call your attention to two uh, very important lectures that we have coming up soon. This coming Monday, October the 10th at 4.30 uh, in this room, but at 4.30 uh, in the afternoon, Dr. Bruce Cole, who's the chairman of the National Council of uh, National Endowment for the Humanities, will be here for a lecture on American ideals and national uh, memory. Uh, Dr. Cole is not only chairman of the uh, Council on the Humanity, uh, Endowment for the Humanities, but is also a very distinguished uh, scholar. So I think that's one that you're n uh, not going to want to miss. And then on Wednesday, October 19th, also at 4:30, also here. Uh, we'll have a lecture from Christine Rosen of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Uh, Dr. Rosen is the author of a recent very important book called Preaching Eugenics uh, on the role of some of the mainline uh, churches in the United States and elsewhere in the development of the eugenic ethics uh, ethic uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And she'll be coming here to talk about what she perceives as the revival of the eugenic ethic idea uh, in our own time. Her, essay, her uh, lecture will be entitled rehabilitating eugenics. Uh, also, I have the pleasure of announcing uh, this evening next year's uh, Vaughn Lecturer. We're very, very pleased and honored that uh, Professor James McPherson, the eminent Civil War historian, will be giving the Vaughn Lecture in the fall of uh, next year. So uh, we don't have a date yet. Uh, we're uh, arranging that with uh, Professor McPherson, but keep uh, that in mind. It will be a wonderful lecture from yet another wonderful uh, Vaughn Lecturer. So uh, now let me uh, invite you to uh, join us for some refreshment in honor of Professor Caesar and Mr. Vaughn, and also invite you to join me in thanking Professor Caesar for his <laughs>